Hi, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. How are you, Jane? I'm doing okie dokie. I'm on vacation this week, but it's not like I'm chilling out. I'm like getting some work done that I've been needing to get done for a very long time. Um, but it's kind of a good feeling that I'm finally starting to chip away at it. And yeah, it's nice to you know, be hanging out with my family a little bit this week. I'm kind of on like, not what's the expression? Not on pins and needles, but on the edge of my seat, mm. try, uh, waiting to hear about what happens with the Derek Chauvin trial. Because yeah, as the of jury, this, as of yeah, yeah, as of this the moment, jury the, ju- the jury's deliberating. deliberating. Do you think it'll be long? I don't think it's long. I think I mean, like obviously, I think the, it's obvious that he did it. You know that he's guilty. But who knows? I know. I I don't know. SNL did a skit. I don't know if it, I think it was either last weekend or the weekend before, where they basically were like, "Well, everyone's in one hundred percent agreement that he's totally guilty, but is he going to be punished for it?" That's yeah. the question. But we'll, I think I just maybe like am miss thinking about juries because I'm basing it all off of like crime shows on Netflix that would always be like, and the jury deliberated for days. Yeah, I mean, there were cases where juries deliberate for a long time because the issue is that the jury has to come to a unanimous decision. But I don't yeah. I don't think, considering the strength of the statements that were made by the prosecution, I would like to think that, that he'll be found guilty, quite obviously, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows, man? That's the hope, but we'll see. Yeah, but it has been, it has been a bit of an upsetting week. Yeah. How are you doing, Sarah? Um, I'm, I'm all right. I just reorganized my bookshelf, which was exciting. Now everything before was color-coded. Now it's by genre. Ooh. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> I'm a new you. woman. I'm a new woman. Sarah's going to start labeling all of her books and organizing them by the Dewey Decimal System. Um. <laughs> I do not know the Dewey Decimal System. I will admit it. I'm not ashamed to admit it. That I don't know the Dewey Decimal System. I do, however, have a personalized stamp to stamp into my books that say this is property of... um, Of course you do! It was a gift. It was a gift. I did not buy it for myself. (laughs) It it was a gift. But is it a gift that I absolutely love? Yes, it is. So that's really how all I'm doing. I don't really have anything exciting to say. One time when when I was a kid and my brothers were also kids, my brothers used to get in the... (laughs) silliest fights over like who could be interested in what thing like my oldest brother felt so distinctly that we all must have our own individual things Uh and he read the hobbit book and he really really loved it and (laughs) my middle brother drew was like i would like to also read the hobbit book (laughs) and chris was like no you can't it's my thing Oh my and God. he was like 10 or 11 at this point. Like he was not like five when he, you're at the like me, me, me age. Like, no, right. he, was like, he, he should have been past it. He should have yeah. been over that. But yeah, so he would not share his Hobbit book with him. So finally, one day my mom takes Drew out to a, like a bookstore and gets him his own copy of The Hobbit. And Drew brings it home. And Chris is so petty. <laughs> That he takes the book and he also was really into Charlie Brown and he took a <laughs> a Charlie Brown stamp he had and like stamped it in all the pages so Drew couldn't read it. You're and kidding. Then, <laughs> nope, not kidding at all. And then Drew 
smart boy that he was was like, well, I'm going to have to wash this out. And he ran it all under the water in the sink and just totally destroyed the book. Oh, he eventually man, read The so Hobbit, silly. right? It's not like, eventually, and now yes. he's an adult and he's never read The Hobbit to this day. No, it's not one of those. Okay. <laughs> and he never forgave. And he never forgot. And he never, forgot. And he never read The Hobbit. <laughs> and he never read The Hobbit. I love The Hobbit. It's such a good book. I have no interest in reading The Lord of the Rings, but I do love mm. The Hobbit. I've watched the movies, but I, I don't need to. Apparently there are long segments describing trees, and I just don't feel like I need that. <laughs> I don't. I'm fine. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. Well, would you like to get started? Sure. So, you asked me about measurements. And oh, this, about the imperial. Yeah. I was like, measurements? Like, how to measure something? I know how to yeah, take You asked me what a ruler was, so I brought one for us to look at. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it together. Uh, it's made of 12 inches and inches like this big. No, I'm kidding. Um, oh my God. <laughs> no, you asked me about like the history of like the imperial system versus yes. the metric system. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I was like titling that in my head of measurements, but that's probably not the best way to describe it. I but- truly thought you were going to stand up and be like, this is how you measure your arm. And I'm like, you know, this is a podcast, right? I can't <laughs> see you. <laughs> Okay, a foot is this big. Okay, moving on. It's 12 (laughs) inches. So imagine one inch and then imagine 12 more. (laughs) Which is honestly like what I do with my students sometimes. Like I'm teaching them about measuring in school. So I literally. Oh, are your tiles on the floor exactly one foot by one foot? Because ours are, and I (gasps) use that for everything. Oh, I don't know. Look, take a look at the tiles. That's what we do. I'm no, like, I can't right, remember if my classroom is tiled. I'm sure the hallway is. But I don't remember if my classroom is tiled. It's gotta be a tile somewhere. It might be carpeted. My high school and elementary school and middle school, I don't know why I've had to say it like that, um, all had like big rectangular tiles. Now all of these classrooms have square tiles. And I'm like, I feel like that's so much more helpful for situations like this. I cannot remember the flooring of my <laughs> elementary school. I don't, know, I don't know why I remember that. I mean, all of the, every school in my district was tiled the same way. So I, that's Maybe why it's because I, I moved a lot that. that I have. Uh, I, di- I didn't hold on to flooring as much as you did. <laughs> it was foundational to my schooling. Yeah. Um, the yeah. flooring at the building. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Obviously. Back in the days before there were easy modes of transportation from place to place, uh-huh. units of measurement varied greatly. Like, right. for, in some cases, like region to region, like some mm-hmm. individual regions would have their own units of measurement that they um, used, invented, whatever, what have you. And in some areas, though, it was even like as much as village to village. It was just oh. like wherever you lived, everybody would be like, okay, we're saying this cucumber is a is a is a thing and we're gonna say we're gonna measure in cucumbers i'm like i don't know <laughs> how i try to live my life measuring in cucumbers measure your life in <laughs> i can't make that work but someone could but when the industrial revolution came around uh-huh all of a sudden there was trains and things and it became so much easier to get from place to place and it was around that time that there was more of a call 
for a standard unit of measurement that was shared by many peoples and it was as widespread as possible. Also because of the assembly lines, right? Yeah. Um, well, maybe. I don't know. I didn't read that, but that makes sense. I read a book in middle school about a girl working at a cotton factory and, or, like, she was a weaver. You know how, like, they made kids mm-hmm. do that because they had little fingers? It was very <sighs> scarring. She loses a finger. I was ah! 12. <laughs> It's awful. The book was called Lydia. I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Stayed with forgot. me. <laughs> I never forgot. I never forgot. I remember watching the Samantha movie, like the American Girl. Oh, mm-hmm. Samantha movie. And that one is very much like she fights to end like child labor, like orphans working yeah. in factories. Yeah. And she's the best. She is. But there's this one scene, and they don't show anything super graphic, but she's, like, going to save her friends at this one factory, and there's a kid in the background who's, they're all working on sewing machines, and he just starts screaming and crying, and you don't, it's, like, vaguely implied that he sews over his finger or something. Yeah, that was, like, common. I remember being so, like, (laughs) terrified Yeah, it's terrifying. My one other gripe with that film... Is that at the end it's of it? It's not a gripe. It can't be a gripe if it's historic. I mean, it could be a gripe, but it is historically accurate. That's not their fault, you know. I know. I'm just saying that was like something Sparring. that I was like scared yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then I, I guess my one gripe with that film, and I guess that book series, is I, I love American Girl overall. This is just my one thing that mm-hmm. at the end of it, Samantha's uncle decides to adopt Nellie and her sisters, mm-hmm. and then Nellie declares. Samantha, we're gonna be sisters, and they dance and hug, and it's all a big thing. And they're like, everybody's like, they're gonna be sisters. I'm like, no, you're not. You're gonna be you're cousins. <laughs> I mean, they live in the same home, so they're a sen- They're like sisters, right? But that's but not how it works. We're being like, no, you're not sisters. You're cousins. <laughs> anyway, okay, sorry. That was such a side tangent. You're a very technical person. Yeah, I am. And I'm very specific when it comes to measurements now. <laughs> measurements, familial labels, what have you. Mm-hmm. Certain There are some measurements that come from all the way from like ancient times. Certain uh-huh. units um, based measurements off of the approximate size of the body, as w- you were talking about last time. For example, a foot is literally like a foot. Now, what I found interesting in reading this is that many different countries have like a different determined size for a foot so they're just basing it off mm. of different average foot sizes right Which makes so sense. like a foot in england might be different than a foot in scotland or ireland or wherever right a cupid is an ancient egyptian measurement that refers to the distance from the like bend of your elbow like your literally mm-hmm. the point of your elbow to the end of your middle finger i actually knew that from a video game well, well, wow. I'm so cultured. You are. I stay inside and I play my PS4 all day. <laughs> yeah. And you are, you are right though. Last week, I'm pretty sure the, um, from one knuckle from your like middle knuckle to your next knuckle, not mm-hmm. from the end of your finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we talked yeah, yeah. about it last time, not the first knuckle to the yeah, second to knuckle, the, the, like, the middle part when you bend your finger, the middle bit. The middle chunk. If you make like a hook with your finger, yeah, the flat part on top, yes, is like an inch. I also learned in this like unrelated, but when I was working in the costume shop at at Muhlenberg College, 
we like approximately a yard is like about your wingspan. Oh, it's not all. It's not exactly the case, but like, but that's still like a good approximation. Yeah, that's a good one to know. Yeah. So a mile comes from the Roman word mile passus, which means a thousand paces, mm-hmm. which they measured as five thousand Roman feet. So again, these like feet are infamous, like everywhere is like literally like the size of a foot, which makes sense because you can like pace you can that count out that. Yeah. by just walking and looking at your feet and counting. In the year 1500, they decided that a mile was specifically eight furlongs. Now a mm. furlong was a unit that was determined by the, by using the German foot mm-hmm. and saying that A furlong is 625 German feet. Mm -hmm. And a mile is eight furlongs. So that, so as of the year 1500, they were saying, so a mile is 5,000 feet. Nice, even, done, good. We like that measurement. But during Queen Elizabeth I's reign, there was this statute that uh, they didn't want to continue using the German foot as their Mm -hmm. unit of measurement. They wanted to use, you know, the English foot and the English foot is smaller. Far daintier. Yeah. <laughs> but, wouldn't you say? What did she say? Cinderella was like over here, like, look at me and my teeny feet. But yeah, so England was switching over from using a German foot to a British foot. Uh-huh. So, but because a British foot was smaller and they didn't want to change how long a mile was, mm. like the actual size of it, they were like, we're not going to change that. But <laughs> a furlong now, because they were using smaller feet, instead of being 625 feet, is now 660. And we already specified that a mile is eight furlongs. So 660 times eight is 5,280 feet. Yeah. That's where we got that horrible uh, number. Yeah. <laughs> that took me so long shit. to remember in elementary school and now it'll never leave me other places such as the british isles and ireland and scotland they all had different lengths for feet as i mentioned before so even though the mile that they were using was the same physical size their number of feet that they said it was is different Mm -hmm. depending on where you were okay it's more standard now but the imperial system came during the 17th century during the British Empire's time of imperialism over mm. the whole dang world. You know, a lot of Africa, many, India. Many places. Many, many places. England Indonesia, was like, uh, as far as the, I was going to say, as far as the as the light can touch, like in, <laughs> <laughs> like in the Lion King. <laughs> like in the Lion King, but I was like, but it was more than that. Like, they, they were covering time that. zones. <laughs> they covered time zones. <laughs> My cat Kramer spends so much time lately just staring out of our window. And my dad and I were making the joke the other day that was like, everything the light touches is his kingdom. So because the British Empire was so far reaching, it was able to introduce their imperial system um, as the standardized measurement system based on the units of weight and measurement that they chose. I see. And that includes the U.S. because remember... Back in the day, we were British. Oh, we remember. (laughs) That's one we don't forget, Jane. (laughs) That's one of the the big things about this country. Yeah. Uh, That whole revolution we fought. Uh, But yeah, we had the British system of measurement when we 
came over here and took some Native American land. And I'm glad I looked into this because in my head, it was like, I bet the US just like had the imperial system and we refused to switch to the metric system purely because we're like, we don't want to change. We're like, nah, Mm. we do what we do. And you know, America first, no one can tell us how to do things better. That Mm. type of attitude. Yeah. And it's, I'm sure that's part of it. (laughs) It's really that um, (laughs) in the aftermath of the French revolution, Many French customs were being questioned, you know, if you can go and execute your king and rebuild your entire government, you know, <laughs> you can look around and be like, what else A can French we fix custom. up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, this imperial system, 12 inches to a foot and five, that, no, that's dumb. Let's not do that anymore. The French came up with what we know today as the metric system. So you're telling me that the U.S. is upholding a system of measurement that was unanimous with imperialism, with colonialism. I mean, I knew it was called the imperial system, but it's still like, you got to admit that's right on the nose that we're like, we have the imperial system because the colonists made it. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's pretty on the nose yeah. for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'll get into why other places started switching over. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, with the rep- with the rise of Napoleon, because the metric yeah. system was now what they were using in France, well, when Napoleon went around dominating Europe, the metric system was spread basically wherever he went throughout the European continent, mm-hmm. and eventually the rest of the world. It kind of spread from there. And okay. Britain was um, a holdout against Napoleon. Napoleon was not able to overtake Britain. So... Uh, because they were, you know, interacting so much more than we were with European countries, the metric system did begin to be part of their mm. uh, culture and their measuring, but they did hold on to the mile. They held on, you were right, you mentioned that last week, that in yeah. England they still use the mile. And that is true, it's because they never officially switched over to the metric system. Um, they more so gradually did it because it's just a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. And but they just held on to this mile that they had had forever. As I just said, road signs in Britain still give distances in miles, even though most Brits, particularly younger ones, are much more comfortable working in the metric system than the imperial system. Mm -hmm. In 1875, the General Conference on Weights and Measurements and Measures was the first major, major international attempt to standardize measurements on a global scale. It also updated measurement units and created new ones as the need required. And then in 1960, that same general conference gave way to the International Committee on Weights and Measures, which like introduced... The most boring conference ever. <laughs> That sounds like the nerdiest club to be in. But they're pro- they're doing some really important work that's probably really useful. So I'm sure. This committee introduced the System of International Units, or sometimes abbreviated as SI. So that's really, it really just depends on, like, who was, like, conquering where you lived, like, and what they wanted your system of measurement to Any be. Any chance England's going to come here, liberate us from America, and make us switch back? I guess I don't want England to conquer us. I want some no. other place to be, like, come but here. But I do think we should switch to the metric system. It's so much easier. I just want the EU as a whole to be, like, America, you can't do what you're doing anymore. <laughs> My brother, one thing that he's obsessing over right now is he loves to watch, like, clips of the women on the view that are just like like mo- like montages of like Megan McCain saying 
um, crazy shit, ignorant things or things that are so ridiculous. And he kept showing me this one clip, which went viral after the whole Meghan Markle Oprah interview mm-hmm. where they asked Meghan like what she thought of it and she basically said like it was so great to see two American women doing finishing the work that our founding fathers started and separating us what? from England and it literally cuts to Whoopi because they're like on Zoom and Whoopi goes okay like and then they change the subject <laughs> I don't understand the view. What are you talking about? I don't understand the appeal of watching. I mean, like, maybe I understand the appeal of Whoopi Goldberg arguing with two racist people. But, like, I just don't understand. I don't understand the appeal. I feel like I would spend so much time. Because in my mind, that means I'm giving time and attention to the people I don't want to give time and attention to. Even though there are people who I agree with on the show. Yeah. I know. I I used to watch it. it. (laughs) <laughs> moms do love it i used to watch it more regularly my mom used to love it because she loves rosie o'donnell um mm. and i would watch it for like what her and Whoopi would talk about but then right. i just got so like i could not handle elizabeth hasselbeck and that really turned me off to it so that's you know measurements i want to talk about something that's a little bit kind of fun and random for the, for the middle, middle segment. segment or is this okay <laughs> i thought you were like i'm also introducing a new idea i was like what i have created my own system of measurement <laughs> it's i will create a system of measurement that is so, so stupid toxic <laughs> so toxic so we are recording this on april 19th mm-hmm. 2021 at first i thought like maybe i'll look into 420 but we talked about 420 in the past we did like two years ago oh yeah tomorrow's 420 yeah it just really came up on me like that i know but i it just sort of dawned on me uh, i was like when does tourist season start tomorrow and guess what like, guess what nope it starts today oh it starts today reporting, i thought it was tomorrow it started at 4 33 p.m april 19th which for oh. us was like three hours ago but yeah who knows when you're listening to it but <laughs> i just thought it would be fun to look up you know some information on what Taurus season holds in store for us oh that's sweet i like tauruses tauruses are like the best people philip is a taurus yeah a taurus i said tourist a taurus she's a tourist (laughs) well she has traveled she's traveled (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna tell her to listen to this episode uh well this isn't specifically for tauruses it's more so like Mm-hmm. In this season, what does each sign have to do? So I've got a couple of different horoscopes pulled up. Mm-hmm. Um, here's some general information. This Taurus so season might be... Sorry, what? Is this advice for what Leo should be doing in Taurus season? Correct. I can look at the Leo one specifically if you Okay, like okay. To. All right. I was just curious if it was specific to Leos or just general horoscopes. Okay, I'm following. It's general. Well, this, this first thing I'll say is general. This tour mm-hmm. season might be a little more wild than you're accustomed to. Oh. After all, there is so much change underway. On April 22nd, Venus will join forces with erratic and unpredictable Uranus. No, thank you. (laughs) Which may take your relationships in a totally different direction than you may have been expecting. I'm not comfortable with this. (laughs) By April 30th, the sun will also join forces with Uranus, inspiring you to break free from your inhibiting confines and embrace your freedom and independence. I don't know why I just became a 12-year-old boy when you said the sun will conjoin with Uranus. Uranus. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> I literally, both times I saw that word, I was like, do I say Uranus or is that really how it's pronounced? Or is that just how people say it when they're afraid to say Uranus? Right. <laughs> just do it. Just do it. It's all right. So I was like, I'm just going to go for it. Go for it. Um, you may feel like a new aspect of your personality is coming out during this time. However, your relationships may feel stalled by April 25th as Venus and Mercury, planet of communication, squares off with cold and inhibiting Saturn. It may feel like everyone is isolated and uninterested in connection. We're all already isolated. I hope we're isolated. I hope no one's giving up on quarantine, even though. Um, I mean, it's like, I feel like we're not really in quarantine anymore because everyone's going to work, you know? I know. That's true. This will challenge you to be patient and earn each other's trust rather than simply expecting it to be handed to you. By May 19th, so much positive will be coming. So much positive will be coming. So much positive. So much positive. This is when Jupiter, planet of luck, expansion, and growth, will enter its home sign of Pisces. When Jupiter is in Pisces, Jupiter is happy as can be. And when Jupiter is happy, there's a much stronger chance that everyone's happy. This transit will encourage generosity, love, and spiritual exploration. It will radiate hope like the light at the end of a dark tunnel. Just before tour season ends, your relationship will experience a moment of stability and trust. On May 19th, Venus and Gemini will form a trine with Saturn, planet of commitment and maturity, encouraging you to let go of the chaos and the toxic patterns and allow yourself to be in a relationship that supports your growth. Now, what I love about this website that I'm looking at, I'm looking at Elite Daily, and Mm -hmm. they are using the K-pop band TXT as their example of, like, each of the signs, which there's (laughs) not enough members to, like, do each of the signs, so it's just, like, um, I I, I don't know all the pronunciations of their names of this band, but it was, like, Yeonjun is a Virgo, and... Um, Subin is a Sagittarius. And... Oh, we love Subin. <laughs> we really and do. You don't know it, but we do. I don't. And Hyunin Kai is a Leo. And Taehyun is an Aquarius. And Byung-Yoo is a, is a Pisces. And, but then that, that then they've run out of members. So then they just like the rest of them are like, and then there's Aries, Taurus, Gemini, <laughs> Cancer. I'm like, no members for that. I thought they should have branched out and done other K-pop groups. I don't know yeah, why they, they should have. They could have done N-Hyphen. Yeah. Hot. I'm going to specifically read the Leo horoscope from Oprah Daily. I just realized that it was Oprah Daily. <laughs> yes, Oprah. Tell me. Yes. Fix so, me. Leo loves the spotlight. But this Taurus season, you'll be encouraged to put others before your own. Mercury and Venus's shift into Gemini in May urges you to act with humanitarian, community-centric mindset. Volunteer with a local organization. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They do. I said that right as you were saying volunteer. I was like, that's exactly what you want me to do. (laughs) Then use your Leo charm to get your extensive social network involved, too. Ever the leader, your friends will follow your example. When Jupiter enters Pisces on May 13, you will find out that people want to support the causes you feel passionately about. I think it's interesting that as Leos, like, I, there's a lot of things that I, I do really identify with the need for attention. <laughs> that everyone's <laughs> constantly like, Leos love the spotlight. But I'm not this, like, super 
social person who right. like is constant. Like I'm, I am more extroverted. I have found in the past few years than I thought I was. Like I thought I was such an introvert, but mm-hmm. this past year I I've like no, I need human connection, right? Uh, which everyone does. Which you have explained to me in the past that they're like extroversion sometimes is is more so versus introversion is more so like how your energy is charged. Yeah. Everyone, regardless of who you right. are, doesn't like needs other people to survive. Right. But anyway, my point is <laughs> that so I don't always identify with everything Leo. And I think mm-hmm. having a rising sign and a moon sign, the doubters can be like, oh, that that just gives you an excuse to be like, well, I'm not exactly like my sign. But it just, it just, I don't know. I really identify with my moon sign. Am I? Right. Like my it cancer. All connects. Yeah. My cancer rising and my Scorpio moon. I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, uh-huh. That perfectly get explains me. my subtle differences me. from the yeah. other Leos. Yeah. Every, I'm just yeah, excited for Taurus season because I think Tauruses are great people. And when Taurus birthdays are coming up, I think like in general, like it's my, like when it's my dad's birthday, like it always feels like such a nice time celebrating him, like celebrating the really nice people in your life makes everybody feel good. I think. Absolutely. So regardless of whether or not you believe in astrology, the people it's still who are nice Tauruses to celebrate are good your, people. Yeah, it's celebrate nice the Tauruses them. in your life. Find a Taurus, yeah. tell a Taurus you love them. I'm going to make Philippa <laughs> listen to this and tell her. And tell a Taurus to and tell a stop Taurus traveling. To, There's a to, panoramic. To get out of your city. And tell the Taurus <laughs> to get out of your city. All right. That was great, Jane. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so... Today, I am talking about something a little odd, and I don't have a lot of information about it, but this was an internet meme um, a couple of years ago, so some of you might might know about this. Oh, to, oh, so it's like, I don't know anything about this, but is it like the Skeleton Wars? The Skeleton Wars? I always see people talking about that i think it's literally just you post pictures of skeletons on people's timelines no this isn't like that like this actually happened but then it became a meme because people remembered that it happened or it was like brought to the general world's attention that this happened and this thing that i am talking in circles about is the great emu war (laughs) (laughs) which if you don't listen to the post to like the the post script of um our show i will briefly once again mention that one time jane and i went to a zoo and there was an emu (laughs) there and the emu hated my guts it really wanted to square up there is a video of it it hated me and the emu enclosure was at the center of a circular zoo so everywhere we went the emu could follow us around the zoo and the uh, the other emu that it was with was was totally fine but it was like actively sticking its head through the fence it was like doing its like head up and down bobbing thing in a threatening way someone who worked at the zoo said yeah he doesn't like you or whatever like it was very obvious that this emu hated me and it was sarah specifically like if it we was were spread out as a group she would the emu would be like going at her and like it would follow me around. around like it was like, suspicious of me like it thought me. i was going to hurt its yeah. children i don't know what was going on not that it had children but it it gave off that energy i don't know i don't know what happened there so i'm already like predisposed to being like emus hate me i don't hate emus they hate me specifically um <laughs> so this was a <laughs> This was of interest to me, this story. Okay. 
Um, so the Great Emu War occurred in Western Australia in 1932 over the course of five course weeks. If you don't know, Western Australia is the large, pretty, pretty deserted territory of Australia. It's more deserted than other parts. Lots of desert. Um, it's and scary it, animals. And scary animals. Lots of scary animals in Australia. Um, the Great Emu War is almost exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> a group of Australian <laughs> farmers and soldiers battled emus, like, literally, um, <gasps> for territory. I thought you were going to say emus fought each other. Like, there were groups of them. No, like West Side there Story, was... but emus. No, no. It was a war. <laughs> <laughs> there were two factions. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> the soldiers and the emus. This was not like West Side Story and that there was no love story between any of them. Um, but they were battling they were battling for territory, essentially, in Western Australia. I'm going to give some content warning for violence against animals here. There was a war. Oh, no. um, so just be, just be aware. I, I'm not going to go into anything particularly brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, I want to establish what was going on in Western Australia in... 1932 and the years before that led to the emu war so following world war one discharged australian veterans were given land to farm in western australia so that they could boost the economy following the war and this was also particularly important to grow more crops sell more things in the wake of the great depression of the Mm. of Mm -hmm. the 30s So farmers, again, were given this land. It was just given to them by the government. And they were encouraged to grow wheat with the promise that if they grew the wheat, they would be given a subsidy for their their work. But the land that was given to them was actually not particularly good for growing wheat. As I mentioned, Western Australia has a lot of deserts to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the best for crops in general. And... Not many of the farmers actually received the promised subsidy from the government. Not to mention that the co- that the price of wheat, the value of wheat, continued to drop. So by f- October of 1932, things were not really looking good for these farmers. Um, they didn't really have a way to make money anymore, and they were caring for these large patches of land that they couldn't really afford. Um, so all of these challenges that had been built up in the... 14 years since the end of um, World War One, um, sort of were exacerbated by the arrival of about 20,000 emus in this area for they their regular uh-huh for their regular breeding season. Now okay. this is th- this is the first fun fact about emus that I'm going to give you, which is that emus are migratory like other birds, um, but they don't have a sp- particular area of Australia that they stick to. They like genuinely do move around a lot (laughs) so they but they and typically they are towards the coast for their non-mating season and inland for their mating season so that nothing happens to the little babies by the water the little babies yeah little babies so they had moved (laughs) inland and into the farms of western australia um particularly the farmlands around chandler and walgulin and the emus liked the cultivated farmlands that the farmers had made for their lo- for their own livestock. They were like, this is great. This is cushy. And the farmers were like, yeah, but not for you. Um, 
so like, the look emus, what you set up in here. So the emus like really truly began to invade, and they became an invasive species to Western Australia. They ate crops, and they spoiled what was left of the crops. Um, they also would destroy fences. Um, you, I would like to take a minute to remind you that emus are six feet tall, so they just like really plowed through those fences which also let in other animals so it was a big issue that emus were running loose on their land on land that was barely producing enough to like pay and feed these farmers Mm -hmm. so the farmers reported their concerns in october of 1932 as i mentioned um to the government and as a response the minister of defense sir george pierce deployed military troops um to the farmers Um, which the farmers had specifically requested because the farmers had been soldiers. And they were like, we know that you have weapons that can knock them out. We know it. We Mm. worked in the military. Send them the weapons. Save the crops. Otherwise, this whole region is not going to have food anymore. Um, mm. Which the the they complied to. Now, to me, in 2021, it seems extreme to be like, you have animal problems? We'll deploy the military. But to them, it made sense because they had just gotten off this war and that was kind of all they knew. Um, so the the request was um, approved under the condition that the farmers would house and feed the military personnel, which they agreed to do. Mm-hmm. Now, Sir George Pierce also claimed that the birds would make good target practice for the military. So you kind of was also like, okay, well, at the very least, we'll be able to improve our shooting because guns were changing a lot at this time. Lots of new technology. It was very different from the muskets of the 18th century, which took forever to reload. They were able to fire a lot faster, but they mm-hmm. were having trouble lining up their targets. So they were like, okay, well, well this will be target practice if nothing else. So they 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 went to Western Australia. They deployed. Um, this may have also been a political move to stop Western Australia from seceding, which was a movement that was gaining popularity because of the mistreatment of farmers and because of the general lack of care towards Western Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Because there aren't really many major cities there. It's not very, they, it doesn't bring in as much, at the time it didn't bring in as much money as other parts of Australia. It's kind of an economic mess. Um, and Western mm-hmm. Australia was ready to leave and govern themselves. Although military involvement in WA was supposed to begin in October of 1932, pretty much right after their request was approved, the operation was delayed by rain that made travel very difficult. And they were delayed three weeks. And instead, the troops were deployed on November 2nd in order to assist the farmers and collect 100 emu skins. That was their that was their goal. <gasps> Skins 100 emus helped the farmers. That was the that was the mission. So the seventh heavy battery of Royal Australian Artillery arrived in Campion, Western Australia, with two machine guns and ten thousand rounds of ammunition. All right, remember that number, ten thousand rounds. A Upon nice the arrival even unit. The, yeah, nice even unit. I mean, I'm sure when you order things <laughs> like bullets, they come in big big round numbers. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Upon the arrival of the military, the farmers attempted to herd the emus. They were like, okay, we'll try to get them on one place and then you'll ambush them. Again, it's like absolutely absurd to me that they're running a military operation on a group of emus. But that's what they did. They were like, we're going to try to herd them. But this proved ineffective because here's your second fun fact about emus. Emus run 30 miles per hour. 
and they Ooh. don't herd as like a habit. Pretty much as soon as they sense danger, they are really good at spreading out. Unlike they animals, they scatter, truly. They are expert scatterers. Even though they don't fly, they are expert scatterers. Unlike animals in like Africa, where normally the threat they want to stay as a group because it's harder for like, say, a lion mm. to attack a herd of wildebeest when they're running as a group. But emus are not like this. Emus don't have very many natural predators. So they know how to scatter and defend themselves. So the birds split apart immediately and just kept running in like circles around whatever. So the ambush totally failed. They couldn't get, they couldn't keep them all in one place. um, And they were very difficult to target. So it was kind of a failed attempt right from the start. Two days later on November 4th, Commanding Officer Major H.P.W. Meredith established another ambush near a local dam where more than a thousand emus had been spotted. I don't know how they knew it was a thousand, but someone was like, hey, there's a huge group of them. And he's like, okay, they're all here together. We'll surround them. They can't all get away, yada, yada. Um, And their goal was to gun down the birds. So they, like, kind of stationed themselves against the dam. Emus backed up against the dam. Machine gun poised. Started to fire. name. We are emus against the dam. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my gosh. It's like an alternative (laughs) rock band. Okay. Anyway. um, But so they start firing at the emus. The emus once again scatter and the machine gun jammed after only 12 (gasps) emus were killed. They got 12 out of a thousand and the remainder during the jam scattered and they could not track them down. They were like, we don't know where they went. They have no idea. They could be anywhere. (laughs) <laughs> i'm picturing them just like pretending to be trees like they've <laughs> like literally what they have like some like... leaves stuck to their they, feathers they scattered like... so well that they didn't even reconvene in a group they were like it's gonna take them days to meet back up like <laughs> again 30 miles per hour so they got very far you know like the the humans couldn't keep up with that mm-hmm. Two days later, on November 6th, one army man noted, um, each pack seems to have its own leader now. A big black plumed <laughs> bird, which st- <laughs> which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. <laughs> because you all think every group they're has on, a dark leader. They're on farmland. So in their mind, it's like, there they are you know, guarding each other while they destroy our crops and destroy our livelihood. But then they like <laughs> truly are like looking for people so then they'll warn them so then they'll scatter and they'll be difficult to shoot. And they also discovered that not only were the emus fast and excellent at the zigzag technique, um, it was very difficult to kill them even when they did get hit with a bullet. They would run through gunfire as if the bullets didn't touch them. That's- <laughs> magical. <laughs> and Major Meredith stated, if we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine <laughs> guns with the invulnerability of tanks. I love that. So they truly do. schools should have an, like the fighting emo as a mascot. They really should. So 
Overall, it wasn't going well. By November 6th, only four days into the mission, 2,500 rounds of ammunition, a quarter, had been fired, but it appeared to have made no difference to the population of emus. It did not threaten them. They were not scared. They did not try to leave. And some estimated that they only killed 50 emus with all of that ammo. Other people believe that it was more like 500, but no one was sure because... Again, they would scatter, so it was very possible that they were getting shot and then sort of going away and dying somewhere, and they didn't know where. But the number that they found dead was not very high for the number of bullets fired. Mm. So ornithologist Dominic Cerventi said this about emus. This is sort of another fact about them. And about this event, the machine gunners Mm. dreams of point blank fire into a serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics and its unwieldy (laughs) army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment that made use that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. So truly this (laughs) this ornithologist was like, oh, they understand guerrilla warfare and they're using it against you and they're doing it well was literally what happened. So, Minister of Defense, Sir Pierce, withdrew the troops on November 8th. He was like, please don't waste ammunition on this. And they left. But the emus were still ravaging the land. So the the pullout didn't last very long. The Minister of Defense then approved a resumption of military efforts on November 12th with Major Meredith being like, no, I swear we can do this. Like, I promise we can take out some emus. Like, it's ridiculous. We can do it. We're the military. They're a bunch of birds. And so the Minister of Defense redeployed them and he said that the soldiers were needed to combat the invasive species for the good of Western Australia. By November 13th, the troops had returned to the field and they killed 40 emus in the first two days, which was a record. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they continued to fight the emus for over two weeks. By December 2nd, they were killing about 100 emus per week and they were proud of that. They were like, that's good. That's a good number. That giant bird that should be easy to hit. Yes, the effort and therefore this war, which was pretty one-sided. I mean, like, the emus knew they were being attacked and it seemed like they had tactics, but it wasn't like a war was officially declared. Um, But this (laughs) campaign ended on December 10th after an estimated 1,000 out of 20,000 have been killed. Oh my gosh. I would also like to mention that they fired 9,980 bullets and they hit 1,000. They got (sighs) 1,000. So it's about a one in 10 shot that they got an email <laughs> with their machine gun. Hilarious. Would not, wouldn't be doing well in trail to or in, or in Oregon trail. No, you really wouldn't. It's like, it's not even a one in 10 shot that they hit one. It's, it's a one in 10 shot that they killed them. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. low. It's pretty low. Um, although the military reported afterwards, they were like, we're proud of that number. We're good with, we're good with this number. But After the effort officially ended, it did nothing to stop the species from invading the farmlands, and they did lose. This is considered a lost war um, because they had to pull out, and the emus continued to invade, um, and it did nothing long-term to protect the farmers' crops, this particular military campaign. What also didn't help was that in December, word of the war had reached the UK, and conservationists there protested the, quote, extermination of the rare emu. 
Now, I would like to say that I do not condone hunting, shooting animals, game, um, poaching, obviously, violence against animals, you know, not okay. I don't agree that the military's answer was let's shoot at the emus with with machine guns. I think Mm -hmm. that response was very much a product of post-World War One society. Um, yeah. But I, I, I hope it will bring you comfort to know that the emu is not an endangered species. It's not even it's not even of concern. When you Google emu endangered, its categorization is of least concern. It <laughs> is prolific in Australia. Um, and again, they are considered an invasive species because they don't have many natural predators and they whatever area they go into, like they're in charge now. So really, the only thing that Western Australians could Western Australians could do was wait or find some other people to help them. So the mm-hmm. first the first thing that they did that really helped curb the emu problem was they used exclusion barrier fencing, which was more effective to keeping the emus out than the wire fencing they had before because the emus couldn't plow through it, Um, which did help because it protected them from the emus and from other animals that the emus had been letting in. And second, unfortunately, um, bounties for emus from from the Australian government were issued. And this actually did a much better job um, paying people, paying like independent people to go and hunt and shoot emus. Um, throughout the end of World War II. I will also mention that I believe that people in Western Australia and Australia eat emus. So they also were like hunting game. Yeah. Like, like you would with deer in America. Yeah. Um, but that effort did end in 1945, the bounty effort. Um, and now emus are, you can see a lot of them in Australia. They're not in danger. Um, they, they ended up fine and they did definitely win the war. so that's about the emus winning the war in australia that was kind of short so i do have a couple of little emu facts for you um hit me with them i already i already mentioned that they are about six feet tall and they can sprint at 30 miles per hour very fast their strong legs also allow them to jump seven feet straight up what which I can only hope this means that the um, so there was something going on with the emu at the zoo that we went to that I didn't just hop that fence. Because that fence was not seven feet high. I no, it was think. not. Um, which also makes helps them escape the bullets. They, like, could jump over them. <laughs> I just, I will never be over the description of um, a black plume bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction. <laughs> like white men being in charge when an emu wants to mate and have a family it is the male that makes a nest of twigs leaves and grass on the ground and then the female will lay 15 5 to 15 eggs in the nest and then leaves and then the male emu will watch the nest until they hatch emu chicks are also very cute i highly recommend you look them up they have stripes um they have brown and cream stripes um, and they can walk and feed themselves from the moment they hatch, but they will still stay with their father for 18 months. So emus are single dads. Good for them. Um, they are simil- really cute. Similar to penguins, which is very cute. Um, emu eggs, like I said, are green. And one emu egg could feed a family of four to six people. <gasps> That's how large they are. It would feel weird eating a big egg like that. Um, like this, webs- this website, I, it would also feel weird, but people do eat them. People eat ostrich eggs, too. 
Emus are also the second largest bird, ostriches being the first. So good for them on that, too. They are very big. Um, a special pouch in an emu's throat also helps it make deep, booming, drumming, and grunting sounds, which I've heard firsthand. Um, and these birds will hiss at things that frighten them. Now, I'd like to say that the emu was not hissing at me. I did not frighten it. It was frightening me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was trying to intimidate me. Um, the last thing that I will say is that in 2019, an emu um, <laughs> that was a pet in Orange County escaped its owner and w- went loose in North Carolina. <laughs> the So the emu was spotted loose on June 26, 2019, and they had to try to taste it down. There are more than 11, which brings me to, there are more than 11,000 emus on United States farms. But emus rarely escape. Apparently, they said that it hadn't happened that an emu escaped from a farm in about a decade. So maybe they, like I said, maybe they really don't like jumping fences. Um, maybe they just... Maybe they just wanted to stay in the fenced-in area. I don't know. But it is odd that there are so many of them in the in zoo, in farms in America, and yet they, like, are rarely escaping and running around, unlike horses and cows, which escape all the time. Well, it's like that even... Tiger King fact about how there's, like, way more tigers <laughs> living in captivity yeah. than there are yeah. in the wild. Yeah. Um, I would like to say also that this New York Times article gives no closure. They did not say if they got the emu back to its owner, it could still be loose out there. If it is, protect me. Um, <laughs> they could be coming for me. <laughs> so that's just some additional facts about emus that I wanted to supplement because my segment was kind of short. But anyway, that's the story of the emus. Very wild. Um, <laughs> that was the great emu war that was fought and lost. Anyway, that is everything we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. And we would love to put it on our show. Okay. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? I have been wondering if you could tell me about being a designated survivor. <gasps> oh, that is like my parents' favorite show. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, they love that show. That's funny. I've never watched the show. but I've never either, but my parents are always like, what should we watch? There's no designated survivor. <laughs> we finished That's... all the seasons. That's really funny. Um, I mean, I do love. Kiefer Sutherland. I did watch 24. But yeah, I'm just like curious what that's like, what that process is like, how that process got put in place, etc. You know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Jane? Well, specifically, I've been wondering why they drained Niagara Falls. <laughs> Do you know what year they did that? Was it 1969? Of course it was 1969. Of course it was. The infamous year. The Um, infamous year. Yeah. But in general, just like facts about Niagara Falls. Like, I feel like I should have learned it because I lived in Buffalo for like three years. So I I, I visited it on the American side, though, which I've heard is like BS compared to. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, like, both times it's like, okay, a waterfall. <laughs> you know, but it's funny how aggressive people are being like, the America side sucks. <laughs> It's terrible. You barely see anything. It's like it's a waterfall. You barely see anything on either side. It's cool, <laughs> but it's still just it's still it's still a waterfall that's far away. I mean, I did. I think if you get on the boat and go up to it, I'm sure that's very very cool. I did not do that. I stood near the water. Um, when but, that guy tightroped over Niagara Falls, I was like, I was mad at him. I was like, why are you doing guy? this, Jane? You weren't alive when he did that. No, no, uh, no. The, not the first guy. Oh, the other guy. Okay. The other guy. Yes. Yeah, like, I thought you were talking about the guy we from... I know it. I watched it. I thought you were talking about the guy from that movie. Is it called The Towers? The French one who Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays and he tightrope oh. between yeah. um, the Twin Towers. And it was so scary. That movie I gives me uh... heart palpitations. Like, why oh do you God. need to do this? You don't. You don't need to do this. <laughs> it's like the, it's like the free, the free solo guy. <laughs> Jane's least favorite movie. I watched a documentary the other day about a man who swam across the Pacific Ocean for no reason. The whole thing? Yeah, over the course of months, Jane. Months. Oh, like he took a boat with him and he would, like, take breaks? Yeah, he swam for about nine hours a day for (sighs) many months. and I would do it, like, 15 minutes a day for years. (laughs) Well, you can't. Most boats can't. They had to, like, specifically engineer a boat to be out there for that long. Most boats, they said it takes most boats... um, two to three weeks, maybe a month to cross the Pacific. Um, boats like that, not like big boats. Yeah. Um, but they were doing it over the course of, I forget how exactly long it took, but they were expecting, they planned for six months. Um, I just they had watched... like solar panels too. It was crazy. Wow. I just watched um, that docu-series on Netflix about the art museum heist. Ooh, um, I need to watch that. I yeah, and it is the same thing. Like, BuzzFeed Unsolved did an episode on it. The Gardner Museum, right? The Gardner Museum. And it totally, like, didn't even dawn on me that that was Boston in 1990. And my parents lived in Boston in 1990. Yeah. So I asked my dad about it, and he was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I was like, Wild. Jeez. <laughs> so, so interesting. Yeah, I should watch that. I'm sure I'd really enjoy it. Anyway, that's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is, you know, what I've been wondering.